This is the Shenandoah Down Under podcast. In the final days of the American Civil War, the CSS Shenandoah set out on an epic year-long secret mission. Join your Australian hosts, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien, as they follow the last Confederate cruiser on its quest to find and sink the Yankee whaling fleet, wherever on the high sea they may find them. And hello, and this is Shenandoah Down Under, or Confederate Pirate Save the Whales, with Rob and Mob, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. That means I'm Mob. Good morning, or afternoon, whatever the case may be, Rob. Oh dear, our, our, our introduction stick never gets old. <laughs> well, it's actually afternoon, um, just this afternoon, on uh, a very nice Tuesday in uh, beautiful Blackburn, South Melbourne. Although it was lovely and sunny earlier, but it's um, starting to come on a little bit cloudy. Mm. Well, 150 years ago, I think the sun is shining beautifully as the CSS Shenandoah is steaming north. Where have they been and where are they going, Rob? Well, um, last week's episode saw the Shenandoah in the uh, capital of the Federated States of Micronesia, Ponape, where they took four whalers and burnt them after a whole lot of looting. Um, I will point out, it wasn't actually the capital of the Federated States of Micronesia at the time. Although it was Ponape, yes. yes. So um, it was, I believe, technically um, under the control of the Spanish crown, but nobody actually in Ponape seemed to realise that. Yes, they weren't exactly (laughs) sitting down and uh, drinking their sangria and uh, watching the bullfights, were they? No, and and probably never did so. But, now, of course, um, uh, Ponape, while it's... um, well above uh, Australia and, uh, sorry, sorry, well north of Australia and um, north of the uh, equator uh, is still a, a, a very hot part of the world, but they are now steaming up towards, uh, let's see if I can get this right, I have a terrible feeling I'm going to say the Sea of Oshkosh, but... Um, the Sea of a brand of children's, <laughs> children's wear, yes? Uh, yes, sorry, Oshkosh Bagosh is in fact a brand of baby and, uh, and toddler's wear, and uh, I greatly amused Michael off air by um, saying that they were steaming north to the Sea of um, Oshkosh. It is... it's, it's interesting, because often Oshkosh does have stuff steaming in it, but... <laughs> But anyway, go on. Did, did we really? Did we really need to go? <laughs> we there? had to go there. I, I, Tell us where they're going, though. They are going to the sea. Oh dear, the sea of Okhotsk. Now, I'm sure I am not pronouncing that correctly, but it's spelled um, O K H O T S K, and it's in the the Russian Arctic. Is that uh, near the Kamchatka Peninsula? I'm sure I pronounced that wrong. Um, I'm not going to essay an opinion on that. It, it, it may be. It, uh, it but they're not. Be. They're not quite there yet. They're still uh, heading up that way. And, and and they are. What they are trying to do at the moment is they are trying to set themselves on the path uh, between San Francisco and China. And um, so they are. They are hoping to. Um, they're probably more hoping to get a, uh, a ship coming back from China. The China Track is the, what the uh, Mr. Whittle yep. in his journal calls yep. it. Uh, once again, I'm holding up uh, the Shenandoah, a memorable cruise, which is Mr. Whittle, the first officer's journal, up to the microphone as, as is tradition. And I know that in this week, probably not much happens and there'll be some whinging and whining about, <laughs> oh, I wish we could capture a prize because... When his journal entries tend to be three or four lines, that kind of gives you a hint that uh, things 
are not going the way he wanted, which is to have lots of prizes oh, and do, glory. Do do they ever? I'm sure when they do get lots of prizes, <clears throat> which might be coming up, I'm sure he'll find things to complain about then. Um, but uh, perhaps luckily in that case, um, we will certainly go through the um, the rather short uh, entries of Mr Whittle, but perhaps luckily um, due to... Um, uh, thank you very much to Barry Crompton of the American Civil War Society of Australia. Roundtable. Round, oh, Roundtable, Inc. Uh, who forwarded us to Midshipman Mason's journals. And we've, we've referred to them uh, since we've got these journals. We've referred to them in the last couple of weeks. But I think uh, we might see if um, anything terribly exciting is happening on the Shenandoah. And we kind of suspect not. But then we might have a bit of a look at Mr Mason's journal. And then perhaps do a bit of a flashback and uh, and. Prize journal because you've um, actually been uh, having a very entertaining time reading through that journal, haven't you? Uh, look, I, I've greatly enjoyed it. And um, Midshipman Mason, um, who was a trainee midshipman uh, when he started on the Shenandoah, but if, if you recall, folks, last week he wrote in French. He wrote, and, and we, <clears throat> yeah, we, we are still waiting to get a translation of, of what he wrote because um, a, a, I suspect that it's, it's rather rude. And and B, so we don't want to you know, make it either more rude or, or less rude. So just rude to refresh this. everyone's memories, what was he actually writing about? He was writing about the habits, we suspect um, loose habits from a European perspective, of the, the women of Ponape. Uh, the local ladies. Yeah, yeah, but yes. No, well, look, we, we, we do have access to a couple of French speakers, so we, um, we will um, try to, to, to get a translation. But um, the other thing that uh, Mr Mason did... Uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks, was he read Nicholas Nickleby by Charles Dickens. So I thought, um, A, we can do a, a bit of a reprise of um, the journal of Mr Mason, um, and B, I, I think we can maybe start a segment called Mr Mason's Book Club, because by one of those coincidences <laughs> that he's in fact very Dickensian, at exactly the moment when I read that Midshipman Mason was reading Nicholas Nickleby by Charles Dickens, I myself was reading Nicholas Nickleby. How about by, that? And unlike in the um, in the Monty Python sketch, it was not Nickleby with two Ks or Ranaby Budge with uh, by Charles Dickens with two Ks. It was in fact Nicholas or a Nickleby. sale of yes, but anyway. Yeah. Uh, so so. Um, what is happening on the China track um, to well, the Shenandoah? Well, very sadly, Rob, <laughs> not much. Uh, Whittle is continuously complaining again of not seeing any sails. They're, they're hoping if they go along this track, yes. they're eventually going to get a Yankee ship that's either going to China or back, presumably. And uh, oh. it doesn't happen. So pretty much for the last week, they spend uh, their time getting the ship in ship-shaped condition again, having been in port. Interestingly, quite a few of the crew were sick after leaving the port, and that could be that they're pining for the uh, the loose women that uh, that was written about in French. It could also be that because they ate their fill of you know uh, tropical fruits, that may have had some effect on them. I, I, I suspect. I suspect. But in any case, uh, it is reported that quite a few of the crew are not well for the few days after they've left port. Including Lieutenant Grimball. And of course, um, this, this also means that despite the fact that um, they took on 42 men in Melbourne, um, they're, they're basically on, on you know, watch and watch about. So all through, all through the, the voyage of the Shenandoah, the, um, the crew were, were, were put under... A whole lot of uh, of pressure as as regarding the work. So, um, a week searching for a ship on the China track and finding 
do we have no nuggets to, to glean from uh, from Mr. Whittles? Not really. I mean, that's that's pretty much what happens when you go in a sailing ship travelling eight or nine knots. It takes you a while to get somewhere. Well, uh, it's interesting because the, the eight or nine knots business, uh, because um, now Whittle has quite often complained that uh, Captain Waddell keeps the Shenandoah very um, short-sailed, meaning um, he doesn't have a whole lot of sails set for... For, for the ship. And um, so the, the Shenandoah at the moment is scudding, I believe the term is, scudding along north uh, at about eight or nine uh, knots. But um, Mr. Mason is convinced that if they were to put their... Um, yes, I'll do a quotation from... So um, we, we now have the you know, rather lucky circumstance that we can uh, you know, quote from, from two journals, not just one. So, um, as the Shenandoah is heading north on Sunday the 16th of April, 1865, Midshipman Mason says, Our ship is in beautiful trim now and runs along with these northeastern trades at the rate of eight knots per hour with foresail, fore and main topsails, and single reefed mizzen topsail. For four or five days now we have not touched a brace. Now, I'm presuming not touching a brace means that they just left exactly the same sails on. That doesn't matter. Well, obviously you can get a lot of reading in there, Rob, because there's not much to do. Uh, Okay, so the breeze is magnificent and I am persuaded that with royals and studding sails set, we should be making 13 and 14 knots with ease. I presume we are cruising as I can hear the sounds from deck of reefing topsails again. I went aloft this evening about five o'clock to look up a sail taking a good spyglass, but after half an hour's fruitless search I came down again in disgust. Have not seen a sail since leaving Ascension, and although this in only a few days still, I am anxious for another prize. So Ascension is actually another name for Ponape. Yes, yes, and again, as previously noted, there is also an Ascension island between um, Africa and Australia. Uh, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, look, I, I think if, if it, it's okay to have two places named the same in different parts of the world, but when you have two of the most isolated islands in the world called the same thing, I think that's... Yeah. Well, there's a lot of Christmas islands, because I think... Uh... When you when you discover an island on Christmas Day, you call it Christmas Island. There's that very famous goodies episode where they go to August Bank Holiday Island, which <laughs> I think is a good one. Oh, uh, now, sorry, um, breaking news. Tuesday the 18th, uh, Midshipman Mason. I've been busy all day today making a pair of pants, of which I stood very much in need, having lost one pair overboard a few weeks ago. Oh, now, Rob, you're going to have to go back through the journal and find out the circumstances of that. Um, well, <laughs> uh, sorry, that, that is my washerwoman did it for me. So presumably the the, the laundry, the officer's laundry servant, maybe in a fit of pique, threw his pants overboard. And another pair I wore out stowing the hold as ascension. So this morning I went to work and almost finished a pair of flannel pants. This occupied the whole day or that part of it which was not consecrated to other occupations such as keeping watch, drilling guns, etc, etc. So yeah, this, is, this is part of, I guess, being in the Navy. So he spent the entire day keeping a watch and, and working, working with the guns. 
And the most interesting part of it to him is that he made a pair of flannel pants. That is interesting. I knew that uh, the crew would often have to make their, their clothes, their slops, as they were called, but I didn't know officers did as well. well this well, presumably is their working clothes, isn't well, it? Well, he, he is a midshipman, so I believe he is the lowest possible right. class of, uh, of officer. And this, this would be not his, like his uniform. These would be his working clothes that yeah, he'd wear I, on, I, on deck. Wednesday the 19th. Weather continues fine and we are cruising under double reef topsails and looking very anxiously for a sail, for we are on the track of vessels bound from San Francisco to China. But so far we have seen nothing at all. Finished my flannel pants and they fit me tolerably well. Well, hurrah! <laughs> Uh, Thursday the 20th, still cruising, lying nearly in the same position, but making a little northings and eastings, being in latitude 20, end long, 150 east about. Still no sails in sight. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Um, Friday the 21st, nothing has transpired since yesterday. Isn't it, isn't it funny that the, where one of our journals has absolutely nothing happening for a week, uh, the other of our journals has absolutely nothing happening for a week. Oh, <laughs> That's oh. probably a good thing, actually. <laughs> well, yes, because if they were disagreeing, then we'd have to get into unreliable narrators and, uh, and all that sort of stuff. Okay, um, not Friday the 21st of April. Nothing has transpired 150 years ago today. Nothing has transpired since yesterday. The captain made me wear ship this evening, which I did in rather a bungling manner, but it was my first attempt, and as there was little or no wind, it was rather a difficult job to get the whole ship around. I have now tacked the packet once and worn her once, and the next time I hope to do both better. Well, I think that's a, that's a big day for a young man. Yeah, there's a bit of uh, self-reflection there in his yeah, journal. Yes, yeah, he hopes to... Yeah. Standing there in his brand new flannel pants. I, yes, I wonder if he made the flannel pants because he knew he was going to be wearing the ship and, uh, and he wanted to be well panted when he did so. <laughs> now, now um, if, if we still have any listeners left after <laughs> this amazingly full, full of incident and, uh, and, 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 you know, um, I, I think the, the weaker the flannel pants, Michael, is going to go down in, in the history of this podcast. As uh, you know, uh, but um, so I think what we'll do now is uh, we'll actually go back and do some flashbacks through Mister Mason's journal for the eighteen months when he was in France and England, waiting to go on the Shenandoah, and pick out some bits that uh, well either that don't involve flannel pants or that involve, or maybe they do. Maybe they he did spend time in France after all, so maybe they do. So, in, in future episodes, we will definitely uh, try to find out more about Midshipman Mason's pants. And uh, I also, I think, uh, and I think definitely a Mid- Midshipman Mason's book club is, is definitely in order. So, But uh, now, talking about books, Michael, I believe you've been reading something fascinating. Well, it, I, I don't think we can quite get an entire episode out of Midshipman Mason's pants. But much, well, much we though, tried. We, we, we did try. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, look, I was very excited that... Uh, Last week, yep. we were uh, contacted by um, an American author, Eric J. Dolan, who's yes. a uh, very well-respected uh, author of historical works in the United States. He's actually a Facebook friend of one of our listeners. Oh, a, a Facebook f- friend of a Facebook friend. We're, we're practically buddies. Yeah. <laughs> Although, you know, we've never met him or actually talked to him. And, uh, yeah, he said he's interested in what we're doing and uh, said we're doing great stuff on a great topic and... 
directed us to a book that he'd actually written called Leviathan, The History of Whaling in America. And, and I, look, I think that's, that's a, a fantastic source to find because, of course, we managed to get all sorts of sources, both original and, and modern, about the Civil War aspect of the Shenandoah. But um, I believe um, there's an actual whole chapter about the Shenandoah in, in this book. There is, yeah. Um, it's been described oh, as... Hold it up to the I'm microphone. I'm holding it up to the microphone now. It's got a very impressive picture on the front cover of uh, some some old-time whalers trying to catch a, a sperm whale, but I think the sperm whale's having the better of them. Yeah, it, it definitely does look like that sperm whale is winning. And yes. Leviathan is actually described by one of one reviewer as the best history of American whaling in a generation. And I can tell you, I am really enjoying this book. I- what, even more than Midshipman Mason's pants? <laughs> I have to say so, Rob. The, oh. the, the, the chapter on the Shenandoah uh, gives a very good uh, recounting of what happened. Yep. Even, uh, I think this is quite fascinating, is it has at the start of this chapter a part about the Great Stone Fleet. Yeah, now I'm, I'm not sure if we've alluded to the Great Stone Fleet before in this podcast, but it was something we certainly were aware of to some extent. But I believe this book has some really fascinating details. Yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting. So, uh, oh, yes, yeah, so and now, Michael, what was the Great Stone Fleet? The Great Stone Fleet, well, the, uh, the Union decided a quick and decisive way to end the war would be with a blockade of southern ports. And... Um, um, given that the war lasted four years, um, didn't quite. It's perhaps not a spoiler that that that, yeah, that didn't come off. It didn't yeah. quite play out the way they planned. But one way you can do that, of course, is put uh, a naval blockade outside the port, and they were definitely doing that. But they had this other brilliant plan. Gideon Wells, the Secretary of the Navy, who um, any time you read that book by Gore Vidal uh, Lincoln, oh yes. Which is a fantastic book. Any time it mentions, Gide- uh, mentions uh, Gideon Wells, he always uh, makes mention of Gideon Wells's uh, magnificent, luxuriant fake hair. Oh, wig. Gideon Wells's wig. Yes, yes. I, 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 I haven't read all of Lincoln. I have to say, uh, but I think I do remember a, a bit about the. Any time, yeah. any time Gideon is mentioned, his wig is mentioned too. So I did, I did look up his picture on uh, on the internet, and yes. That's that's a pretty impressive set of whatever it, whatever it was made of sitting on his head. Anyway, Gideon Wells decided a great way to uh, further make the blockade successful would be to sink some ships in the mouths of uh, Charleston Harbour. But well, that certainly sounds like a reasonable idea. But didn't the South have more than one port? Well, this was the key port, though. So they okay. thought this was a good idea. So. They advertised that they wanted to get 25 ships of uh, no less than 250 tonnes. Now, the whaling industry was going through a bit of a slump uh, just before the Civil War due to uh, other types of oil now being used for lighting and so on, kerosene being one of them and other petroleum uh, products. Well, uh, and turpentine, I believe, which is not a petroleum product but comes from pine sap. I did not know that. Thank, thank you, Google. Well, that, that's going to be really good after peak oil. We'll have peak pine well, at yeah, some point. I, I think that's fantastic. So we we will be able, in the post-apocalyptic landscape, we will be able to light our houses. I'm just not sure we'll be able to run our iPhones or indeed our podcasts off turpentine, yes. which, which is a bit of a shame. But anyway. Yeah. Also makes very good uh, drinking, I understand, if you're really desperate. I, I think you have to... I shouldn't know this, but I think you have to mix it with methylated spirits in order to get the... Oh, a cocktail. <laughs> anyway, 
So Gideon Wells has uh, asked to buy, he, he wanted to get 25 ships to, to sink there. These were purchased and most of them, in fact, I think 24 of the 25, were New Bedford whaling ships or ships from, uh, ships from the, the north where the, where, the, where the whalers were based. And a lot of them were old ships that were surplus to requirements because the industry had slumped in the uh, in the decade or so before. And I believe you were telling me before that one of the ships that was, was sunk to make up the Great Stone Fleet was, in fact, 100 years old. Yes, uh, um, uh, Eric J. Dolan's book mentions that a couple of them were over 100 years old. So these are really old ships. And... Um, there is one Union Admiral who's a bit sniffy about the terrible state of these ships when they uh, come down to be to be sunk, but they're only going to be sunk, so I don't really understand that. Yeah, well, it, it, but again, may, maybe the, the price was high for, for terrible ships. They, they, they paid well for them, um, $10 a tonne. They got 25 vessels, 24 of which were whale ships, 14 coming from New Bedford and Fairhaven, 5 from New London, 2 from Mystic, and 1 each from Nantucket, Inkertown, oh, um, and Sag Harbour. Would, would that be the Mystic of, of that early Julia Roberts movie, Mystic Pizza? I think it was, yes. Oh, there you go. They, had, they, they served their pizzas with blubber back in those days. <laughs> so these uh, sacrificial lambs for the Union cause, as they're described here, were called the Stone Fleet in honour of... Uh, was going to happen to them. They were going to sink like stones. So, or, or, no, no, was, no, was it called that because they were going to sink like stones or they were going to be sunk with stones in them? Well, they were going to be sunk with stones. The, the original plan was to fill them with granite blocks, but granite wasn't as readily available as field stone. And I'm assuming field stone are stones you find in fields. Yeah. Because it says here in uh, Dolan's book that a whole lot of farmers getting 50 cents a tonne were having a great time dismantling all their rock walls and... Which, and which they would have, have had to pay to, to get taken away. <laughs> and carting them to the docks. And also, um, in great excitement, a whole lot of cobblestone streets were ripped up too, all for the cause. And they got 7,500 tonnes of this stone and uh, were put in the holes. So the ships were sent down to um, the south and... I think this is rather uh, ironic and funny too. So, um, actually, it was Savannah. It was going to be for the uh, Savannah blockade. I think oh, I said Charleston. You before. did say Charleston. Yes. Yeah. 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 And uh, now, but we, we won't edit that out because it was a mistake made by you. And as sound editor, I'm a lot more punctilious about editing out my mistakes. Well, rather. I'm going to explain why I made. Oh, <laughs> okay. So it wasn't quite say, a mistake. Okay. Yes. Okay. So actually, they went to Savannah first to to, to sink the uh, stone fleet there. Now, there was a slight uh, fly in the ointment to this brilliant master plan, and that is that when the Confederates saw 25 ships assembling off the coast. Yep. They immediately thought it was an invasion fleet. So okay. <laughs> what did they do? They went out and sunk their own ships in Savannah Harbour <laughs> to stop the invasion fleet coming in. Oh dear, I, I don't think I think I think the fog the fog of war was especially foggy that day. Yes. Yeah, I, I yeah. <laughs> I, <laughs> so all of a sudden we now have the South sinking their own ships to blockade the ships that were going to come in and blockade anyway. And they've got these 25 old uh, creaking rickety ships full of stones outside. That, that would have had a hard time <laughs> invading a whale. Yes. Yeah. So, 
that's where uh, Charleston comes in. Because all of a sudden, oh, great, actually, we're going to do it in another one now. <laughs> so they oh, went so, down. So they then went to Charleston. They went, in, went down and uh, sunk the ships in Charleston Harbour. Okay, yes. thereby blockading it. Yes. Yes. Now, interestingly, um, it goes on to describe in Dolan's book how it really wasn't much of a success anyway. The ships were sunk there, and uh, pretty much within a year or two, the channels had changed, the sands had shifted. Because the ships were so full of stones, they sunk even further down into the into the sand. So uh, it really wasn't a success in any way whatsoever. Anyway, I, I wonder if um, you know because people people dive um, dive on the the Alabama. Uh, to this day, I wonder if um, anybody dives onto the uh, onto the stone something fleet. We, something we should go and have a look for. So um, that was the the Great Stone Fleet. That was the first thing that happened in the Civil War to cripple the whaling industry uh, after the Civil War. And of course, we're having this podcast series about one of the other things <laughs> that uh, that stopped it happening. So. By the end of the Civil War, the combination of the Great Stone Fleet and uh, what Captain Waddell was getting up to had a very significant impact. So I'm really enjoying this book, Rob, and I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to keep reading. Oh, well, now, now again, um, uh, there, there, there are some very amusing stories uh, in there uh, relating to some ships that the Shenandoah um, uh, captured later on in their voyage, but I, I don't think we want to do spoilers at this moment, um, so we'll, um, we'll leave them to later. But... Um, Oh, okay. I'll just do one. There was one very unfortunate whaling captain who was managed to be have his ship sunk by both the Alabama and the Shenandoah. Yes, and, and uh, we'll give that full story in a later episode. But you really have and, to and say another and another crewman or captain who had um, Lieutenant or Lieutenant Smith Lee come on board both from the Alabama and the Shenandoah to tell him his ship was going to be burned. And uh, he thought, Smith Lee thought it was a great joke, but the captain did Yeah, I, I, I can see um, that joke would very much depend uh, on what, what side of it, yeah. what side of it you are. Although, actually, that does actually remind me of a story from the Second World War. Um, an old salt, an old British sailor, was, um, his, his ship was sunk in the, uh, in the Atlantic, and he was picked up by uh, an elderly British cruiser. And um, basically, he was put put down on the bunk and went to sleep. And he, he woke up the next day in a in a in a state of great horror and terror. And and the doctors rang up to him and, and said, "What ship is this?" And I, I have to say, I forget the name of the ship, but let's say it's it's the you know, the War Spite. It wasn't, but um, it's a War Spite. And he said, "Or the what, Albatross." <laughs> and what year is it? And he said, "1942." And he said, "Oh, thank God, because he'd been sunk in the First World War as well. Had been picked up by the same ship." <laughs> and, and was thinking that the last twenty years of his life had been a dream. Oh wow! So, Can you imagine how? Uh, anyway, anyway, um, we we are digressing here, but it's it's a useful digression because, to be frank, it's it's got us to the end of the end of the episode. So we will certainly um, follow up um, more from uh, Leviathan because I think it's a a rather unique look at our subject uh, from from the whaling perspective. Um, and look again, well, I, there are some some statistics given in the, in the book about the. The, how the production of whale oil was affected uh, by the uh, by the Civil War, and um, 
we, we should try and follow that up and try and work out um, how many how many whales the Shenandoah might actually have saved, because I think that will be a wonderful thing to try mm. and do, a bit of a guesstimate. But anyway, uh, for now, we, we have, you know, with pants and whaling, we have come to the end of, of yet another episode of Shenandoah Down Under or Confederate Pirates Save the Whales. Um, this has been Robin Mob, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien. I was Rob. And I am Mob, and I'm wearing pants. <laughs> oh, dear. okay. Ahoy. <laughs> Tally. Um... Goodbye. <laughs>